tonight we are going to continue our study of cults and sects. And tonight I'm going to show you why I didn't just title our seminar Cults. I could have just said we're doing a six-week series on cults. And by way of reminder, a cult come from that Latin word cultus. It really refers to wrong worship. This is a group that associates typically with Christianity, but in truth is not of it. It is proven to actually deny the heart of the faith. In other words, it's not a denominational dispute. This isn't Baptist versus Presbyterians. This is Christianity versus something else. The last few weeks, we have addressed the three most significant well-known cults in the United States. Mormonism, which we established Wonderful people. This is not a question of their character. Some tremendous folks. But the actual doctrine of Mormonism is foreign to Christianity. It denies the heart of the gospel. Mormonism. Then we studied Jehovah's Witnesses, the JWs. We learned similarly. Tremendous folks, but their official doctrine denies the heart of Christianity. Uh, A slightly less well-known cult we studied last week, Christian Science not Scientology, Christian science, which we discovered is not only pretty odd, it is a cult that denies the heart of the faith. Tonight, I'm going to address one that is debated. Godly, conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians are torn on how to categorize this group. Some will conclude that the doctrinal aberrations of this group would make us have to admit they are a cult. There are some that will counter, yes, but it's probably better to classify them as a sect of Christianity. And I think you'll discover why tonight that tension is a tension we should all feel. Because on the one hand, there are some core teachings they provide that are odd, that really are like, okay, this this is messing up. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. But then they affirm so much else that it's hard to put them in the same category as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. Tonight, we're going to address that group known as Seventh-day Adventists, which is surely a group you're familiar with because they are a most populous group. So why don't you join me as we pray. Let's ask God to help us. And then we'll pursue our course of study for the evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and that you would use me to clearly communicate what's true. I want to not create a caricature. I want to be charitable and honest and faithful. And I want to help us to know good from evil, right from wrong, to discern, test the spirits, and to be able to share the hope we have to those who are so close And yet so far. And so would you help me, Lord, to do just that for the sake of these folks, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the phrase Seventh-day Adventist? Maybe some people come to mind. Sure. Saturday church. That might be the first thing that comes to your mind. You've heard those are those folks that just go to church on Saturday. You drive by the church building, and it's got that big old building that isn't it kind of odd that they make a statement by saying, we're not just any old church, we're a Seventh-day Adventist church. Maybe that's what comes to your mind. Or maybe you follow politics and you've watched TV and you realized a, a significant presidential candidate from several years ago, Ben Carson, famously identified 
as a Seventh-day Adventist. You may not be terribly familiar with this, but I trust you know these names. Did you realize these following well-known Americans were Seventh-day Adventists? Men and women like Little Richard, or Will Kellogg from Kellogg Cereal, or Judge Mathis, if you've ever watched daytime TV, you're homesick from work or you sleep, can't sleep in the middle of the night, Judge Mathis, he was a Seventh-day Adventist. Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world, was raised in this uh, group. Heidi Cruz, wife of Senator Ted Cruz, was raised in this group. Even Magic Johnson, I didn't know that, was a part of this group. It's even reported that David Koresh, who was the man who infamously was involved with the 1993 Waco massacre, he had his origins in the Seventh-day Adventist group. The famed musician Prince. Background, Seventh-day Adventism. Even Malcolm X, that famous civil rights individual, all have a background here. So you're maybe puzzled thinking, my word, I didn't realize that many individuals of significant influence were associated with this. What is this? What, what is Seventh-day Adventism? One thing that's really interesting is it's a tremendously populated sect. There are some 22 million people today that cite Seventh-day Adventism as their group. Do you realize that's way more than there are Southern Baptists? This is a group bigger than the largest Protestant denomination on earth. Isn't that something? This is a group that has hospitals all around the country. Y'all ever noticed a hospital? They're predominantly in California and Florida, but I was in Hawaii a year and a half ago and drove by a hospital that said a Seventh-day Adventist hospital. They're famously uh, got the names on several hospitals. They are the eighth largest religious body on the planet, and they have some odd beliefs. You know, they only worship on the Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. They avoid during that time going to work go into any entertainment. They even avoid going to funerals, uh, it's reported. So, so who are these folks? And tonight, as we've done with every other group, I want to be charitable. I want to be honest. I want to give you the clearest picture I know how so that you can rightly assess who they are, what they believe, why they exist, what they do, okay? So let's pursue the same course of study we've had with all the other groups by beginning with that most interesting question. Where on earth did they come from? And do you want to know what's so wild? Their roots, the soil from which they sprung, is the exact same soil from which we found Christian science, from which we found Jehovah's Witnesses, from which we found Mormonism. It began during the Second Great Awakening, which was a religious movement in the 19th century, the 1800s, here in the United States. Do you guys recall with me? that I use the analogy of a wildfire. The Second Great Awakening was like a wildfire. It was, by and large, a fraudulent revival. Now, there was true fruit that did happen, I'll grant. But in general, there were a lot of false revivalists, these guys who are hucksters. They realized how to do the tricks of the trade. They could guarantee you decisions. These evangelists knew that if they came into town, they could whip up the crowd and get people to come down the aisle and... Uh, and come to Jesus. By the way, it's not hard to do. I promise you this. If you wanted to dare me, 
this sun, summer, I'll tell Pastor Campbell, hey, I'm going to preach VBS. And you guys name a number of decisions you want. And I'll say, got it. There is a way to manipulate a crowd. I can whip up a crowd of kids and get 17 kids or 27 kids or 77 kids to decide they want to come to Jesus. There is a way to manipulate emotions. These guys figured out how to do it. But the problem is, is that a genuine convert? No. What you ended up having was a generation of people that it's like they got inoculated with Christianity. It wasn't the real thing. It actually just lulled them into feeling like they didn't have any problem. They were just generally associated. It was like this fire that raged through New England. And what happens when a fire rages through a uh, grassy area? It leaves behind nothing but burnt, charred remains. There was a spiritual wasteland left. In fact, it was actually called the burned over districts in New York because there was just spiritual deadness everywhere. But what is the first thing in a dead field that begins to grow after a wildfire? The first thing you'll see are those most vigorous, rigorous of plants, weeds. These little weeds began to pop up. And spiritually, there were weeds that began to pop up in these burned over districts of the 19th century, the 1800s. They were these cults. They were these false versions of Christianity that began to grow because these people were annoyed. They couldn't decide what was true. They didn't like the false Christianity. They started to see the denominational strife between Baptists and Episcopals and Methodists, etc., the Presbyterians, and they realized, you know what, we need to get back to the real, original, primitive Christianity. We need to get back to the sources, which is what Mormonism was an effort in doing. They wanted to get back to the real thing. That was what Jehovah's Witnesses were trying to do. Let's get back to the real thing. Christian science, it was just really wacky, but kind of getting back to the real thing. Tonight, you're going to see another group that sought to get back to the real thing. This group begins in this weird season of Christianity in the 19th century in the United States. During this time of the Second Great Awakening, they had a fascination begin to rise that I bet fascinates a lot of you to this day. How many of you, by a show of hands, if you know the pastor is going to preach on end times, you're like, i got to be honest, I'm interested. Y'all, the number of times people said how much they loved my Revelation series, I know it's not because I was a good preacher. It's because Revelation is just interesting. Everybody wants to hear about Revelation. There was this really big interest in the second coming during the 19th century. They wanted to know when Jesus was coming back. They were in particular... Big groups of Christians were wrestling with a few prophecies in the Old Testament. They couldn't figure out what Daniel meant in Daniel 9 when he talked about the 70 weeks. Do you remember that prophecy? He says there's going to be this 70-week span that's going to pass between the temple being rebuilt and the promised one coming. And they wanted to know what that meant. They were also wrestling with this other strange phrase in uh, Daniel 8 and verse 14 that said there was going to be 2,900 evenings and mornings that were going to pass until the temple would be cleansed. They really wrestled with, what does this mean? They were struggling with it until one guy came up with a solution. There was a most famous man. This is a name you need to know. His name was William Miller. And he came up with a crazy theory that started a movement that echoes to this very day. William Miller decided, I know the answer. 
He did some crazy wonky math. He said, in prophecy, oftentimes a day equals a year, which there's some truth to that. There's day with the Lord, a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. There's, there's symbolic language with t- uh, periods of time in the Bible. So he said, okay, 70 weeks, that's 490 days, which is true. If a day equals a year with a lot of prophetic language, Daniel must be saying something's going to happen between a span of 490 years. So when's the start date? And when's the finish date? If the prophecy in Daniel says there's going to be 70 weeks between the temple being rebuilt and the promised one coming, he did some math. And he said, okay, well, the temple was first declared to be rebuilt by Artaxerxes in history in 497 B.C. I think it was. 495. I got it. It's in my notes somewhere. Whatever. It's somewhere around there. And so he did some math. And he said, okay, so what's that date plus 490 years? You want to know uh, what that date plus 490 years is? 33 A.D. What happened in 33 A.D.? It's when Jesus died and rose from the dead. And he concluded, this must be a prophecy of Jesus coming and rising from the dead. That's what this means. And so the same principle he used to interpret the 70 weeks, he decided, let's apply that to that other verse that's puzzling us. The verse about the 2,900 uh, mornings and evenings. A morning and evening is a day, so 2,900 days. If that one day equals a year, let's do uh, the years now. So what does, how does that math add up? So guess what he did? Forgive me, I said 2,900, it's 2,400. So he takes that number. And he adds it to the four, uh, whatever that year was that Artaxerxes declared the temple was rebuilt. Let me look at my notes so that I get this right for you guys. For 457 AD, forgive me, the year 457 AD, he adds that number, 2,400, to the year 457. And guess what date he gets? He gets the year 1843, which is convenient because he was theorizing this in 1818, just about 25 years ahead of time. And he all of a sudden realized, oh my word, Jesus is coming again in my lifetime. He's going to come in 1843. Daniel prophesied this. So he got excited. And guess what? He was successful at getting a whole lot of other people excited. He started to get a ton of followers who agreed Jesus is coming again, and we know when he's coming again. He's coming again in 1843. Now, what's funny is they actually ended up redoing their math. You know, you're like, oh, I got that number wrong. They ended up concluding, nope, we now know the exact day. They concluded October the 22nd, 1844, was going to be the day Jesus would come again. They got so excited that people started to sell their homes. They started to commune together. They were ready and waiting for this day. They became known as the Millerites. They followed Miller, the Millerites. You can go Google today and find the Millerites. They also adopted another name. These Millerites also became known as the Adventists. Do you know why? Because the word Advent in the Latin, Adventus, means coming. An Adventist is one who is obsessed with Jesus' second coming. These Adventists or Millerites, these people that bought what 
William Miller prophesied that Jesus was coming again on October the 22nd, 1844, they all got real excited, except guess what happened? They made it all the way to that day, and guess what? As I told you before, nothing happened, and church history remembers that moment. This is for real. I'm not making this up. It is remembered as the great disappointment, (laughs) which is what a sad way to remember that day. They were disappointed. In fact, all these Millerites, these followers of William Miller, there was two camps. One big camp just got disillusioned. They were mad, sad, frustrated, and they left the movement. But there were some stalwarts. There were some that weren't dejected. They just got determined. I am going to redo this math. we got to figure out what's happened. Well, there was one man in particular named Hiram Edson. And this man, the very next day, he was with a group. He was in this cloister, this community, waiting for Jesus to come again. Jesus didn't come again. All of his friends left crying and sad. He went off to pray. And he claims that on the next morning, after the great disappointment, he received a vision from God. And God's vision showed Hiram two things. One, William Miller got something right. He got the when right. But he got something wrong. He got the what wrong. His timing was right, but what they should have expected was wrong. His vision was that William Miller was right, that on October the 22nd, 1844, something incredible happened. Jesus came, but how he came was what William got wrong. His vision led him to believe that Jesus did not come again on earth visibly. This is where you're going to have to really track with me. His vision was that on October the 22nd, 1844, Jesus came to a different place. He's now picturing the temple from the Old Testament. If you've read the book of Leviticus, for example, that describes temple worship and tabernacle worship, surely you remember that in the Levitical system, the high priest and the the priests, for that matter, they would minister, make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And if you can recall, the priests alone would take the sacrifices and go into a very sacred room within the tabernacle and the temple. It was called the holy place. And in this holy room, the holy place, which was marked by a lampstand, by a table of showbread, by an altar of incense, there they would make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins for the people. Hiram said that Jesus, it was like he was in a heavenly tabernacle or a heavenly temple. And when Jesus died on the cross, Hiram's view was that when Jesus died on the cross, it was like Jesus had made a sacrifice in the temple. That the cross was his altar. That his body was the sacrificial lamb, which we would agree with those languages. But that Jesus had stayed in that holy temple, the holy room of the temple in heaven, where he has been, uh, he has been forgiving our sins. But if you can remember, there is one more important room in the temple, is there not? It's the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest would go from the holy place into the Holy of Holies, wherein you would find the Ark of the Covenant, 
and only there could the high priest go and make a forgiveness, make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, spread the blood on the mercy seat. And part of the Levitical uh, picture is that when the high priest would go in there, it would cleanse the temple. It's kind of strange Levitical language and imagery. And he said, do you know want to know what happened on October the 22nd, 1844? Just like the high priest would go once a year from the holy place to the holy of holies, Jesus finally left the holy place of heaven. And on October the 22nd, 1844, he went into the holy of holies where he was about to begin the end of all things. His view was that in that, I know some of you are looking at me like, I'm with you. Okay. I'm trying to track with you, but I'm having trouble here. Jesus left and went into this holy of holies where he began to start something that has continued to this very moment. Jesus in this moment, he argued, began a ministry that would culminate with one great moment. Do you remember what's the last thing the high priest would do after ministering in the Holy of Holies? He would go and lay his hand upon an animal and drive that animal off into the wilderness. Do you recall what that animal was? The scapegoat. And Hiram Edson's interpretation is just like the high priest of old would end his day of atonement by casting the sins of the people on the scapegoat that would run off into the wilderness. So Jesus is going to end his heavenly ministry and finally come back to earth by casting the sins of us on the eternal cosmic scapegoat, Satan himself. And when that day comes, when Satan becomes our scapegoat, then the end will come. So the question is, it's 2024. 1844 was almost 200 years ago. What's going on right now? I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but they believe something very important has been happening in heaven between 1844 and today. And they believe that Jesus will return at any moment once he finishes this task. And just wait. I'm going to tell you what that task is, but we're going to cliffhanger it for a second, okay? There's one other, two other names, though, I want to put on your mind. Not just William Miller and not just Hiram Edson. There's another name that was important. There was a man named Joseph Bates who added another flavor to this conversation. He was another Millerite. He was one of the guys that was really waiting for this day and got disappointed. But he theorized something. He theorized that the mark of apostasy, when he would read the book of Revelation and see the mark of the beast, and then he would read Revelation and see the mark of the righteous, he said the mark of the beast were those people that followed the universal Catholic Church, and one of the distinguishing marks of the Catholic Church that they changed was they stopped worshiping on Saturday and started worshiping on Sunday. So he said, Christians that worshiped on Sundays were a part of the apostate church. We need to go back to worshiping on Saturday. That is a mark of the 144,000, he would argue, in the book of Revelation. That's the remnant church, the true church. So the true church needs to start worshiping on Saturday. And he had a lot of people be persuaded by his view, including a lady who you need to know. This is one of the most famous ladies in cultic Christianity history. Her name is Ellen G. White. You need to know the name Ellen White because she's the most significant person in the history of Seventh-day Adventism. Ellen White was a believer. 
she followed uh, what Joseph Bates taught about the seventh day being the sign that you're real and worshiping on Sunday being the sign you're apostate. And she followed Hiram Edson with all the crazy views about what happened on October the 22nd, 1844. And she did one better. She started to have visions. Who does this remind you of? Does it kind of remind you of Mary Baker Eddy from last week and all her visions? Ellen G. White started to have visions, and she had visions of God telling her that Hiram was right. She had a vision from God conveniently telling her that Joseph Bates was right. And she became a fancied prophetess of this movement, an Adventist that was arguing persuasively for this view of the faith. She, along with these others, together began a movement that became known as Seventh-day Adventism. Adventism, because they had this real obsession with Jesus coming back. Advent, coming. Seventh day, because they had a distinguishing belief that, G, uh, that the mark of the true church was those who worshipped on the seventh day. And so it, that name has largely abided to this day. Seventh Adventist churches are churches that in their theology see October the 22nd, 1844 as a significant day in which Jesus in heaven moved from the holy place to the holy of holies where he began his final act before he would come again. And they are folks who believe that the mark of a true believer is one who worships on Saturday. This has been a movement that has exploded in growth. It's around the world. There's some 22 million people that are involved. If you go Google Seventh-day Adventist Church on uh, Google Maps, you're going to find dozens all around Charlotte. If you go Google Christian Science, I found one. If you go Google Jehovah's Witnesses, you'll find a handful. You go Google Mormons, handful. You Google Seventh-day Adventists, dozens. They are quite common. So now let's think through together, what on earth do these people read and teach? What, like, what is this doctrine of which they speak? What are their core convictions? Well, let's start with what they read. And the first thing I'm going to mention is going to make you be real confused. They believe in the Bible. And I mean they believe in the authority of the Bible alone. They could sit at any table in this room and with full affirmation say, I believe. I believe in sola scriptura, the authority of God's word alone. They believe the Bible is God's written revelation to us. Now, there are some quibbles. Technically speaking, the average uh, informed Seventh-day Adventist would not believe precisely what we believe about the Bible. Precisely, conservative evangelical Christians would say we believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration, which is another way of saying we believe every word in all the Bible is Scripture, that every word came from God. They would say, no, I don't think the words were from God. I just think the thoughts were. So it's human authors just conveying divinely inspired thoughts. But not every Seventh-day Adventist would even be well-informed enough to like know that distinction. So I don't want to broad brush it too much. In the same way that there's countless, there's doubtlessly countless Roman Catholics around the world who are unaware of the actual official teaching of their church and probably believe they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not recognizing that the official teaching of the Pope is quite contrary to it. I think that's probably the same situation with a lot of Seventh-day Adventists. But they believe the Bible. In fact, they believe the Bible in such a way that though they look at Ellen White as an unusually 
uh, inspired woman. They would call her one who has the gift of prophecy. They read her writings and find all of her writings to be divinely inspired. All of them would attest, including Ellen White herself, that those writings are subordinate to the Bible. They use this language. We judge her writings by the Bible, not the Bible by her writings. It's a step above your favorite Christian author, your favorite Christian preacher. They would call it really, really good, but they're going to say it's a little bit better because it's kind of like she has the gift of prophecy. So they would say this is uniquely God-given information. Now, I will say, having been as charitable as I can, when you actually dig into it, you'll discover that, as you might expect, Ellen White has far more influence than they want to let on. Sometimes the cart gets put before the horse. Now, the truth is all of us can fall victims to this. There have been people in here that have decided if Charles Stanley says it, that settles it for me. And that's, that's really not how any of us should be. We should always test anything Kyler or Clint or any of your favorite preachers might say. You need to test it by the Bible. The Bible alone is the authority. So we're all prone to this. But in Seventh-day Adventism, you will see Ellen White's influence get thrown around unusually strong. Now, now what do they teach then? Because here's what's wild. Their belief in the Bible and the official doctrine of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit all sounds like what we would say. They would pretty much be able to look at our Baptist faith and message, and it's going to feel like, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's about it. If you remember, Mormonism was not like that. Jehovah's Witnesses was not like that. Christian science, not like that. <laughs> Seventh-day Adventism, they're going to like line up pretty decently. They're going to start looking at all this stuff. They're just going to have some distinctives that are out there. Some of them are like, you know, okay, weird, but I don't know if it's like that big of a deal. But some of them are like, okay, we've got something weird going on here. So this is what I want to do now. I want to go through what they teach and highlight some of these distinctives. And as we do, you guys are just going to have to wrestle in your minds with me on what category do they fall into. And I'll give you my take at the conclusion of our study tonight. First distinctive that they uh, are known for, as you might expect, is what some might call Sabbatarianism, which is just another way of saying they believe convictionally that the seventh day, Saturday, is a God-ordained day. Now, in one sense, they're right. In one sense, the seventh day is a pattern that was originated in uh, creation. You remember when God created on the sixth day and on the seventh day, he rested and he established a principle of rest. In the law given at Mount Sinai, he told you to keep the Sabbath day holy. It was a clear law. The Sabbath was honored, revered throughout the history of Judaism. But if you can recall, in the days of Jesus, the doctrine of the Sabbath had been perverted such that the Pharisees and Sadducees had turned it into this hyper-legalistic day that was a burden on the people, and Jesus rocked the world when he started disobeying the Sabbath laws. And they looked at him and said, how could you do this, you blasphemer? And Jesus' famous words were what? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He called himself what? Lord of the Sabbath. 
Jesus from that day forward was reconstruing the whole point of the Sabbath. He was, in other words, demonstrating for us that it was not the rule and regulation of Sabbath keeping that actually merited anything. It was but a sign. Sabbath was a pointer, just like so many other things in the Old Testament, were pointers to what was to come, that Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath. He was our Sabbath rest. He was the one in whom we could find that eternal rest, just like he was the lamb that was slain a million times over in the Old Testament. Jesus, in other words, upended the moral law. He did not do away with the law. In fact, the Bible makes it quite clear that the law exists to show us our need for him. The law is there, but he upended that uh, whole Mosaic law so that people could see the whole point of it was Jesus, which is why Christians in the early church began to worship on Sunday. What was so significant about the first day of the week? It was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And the day upon which Jesus rose from the dead, Christians began to honor it as a great day of worship and have historically worshiped uh, since that time. Now, some churches do worship on Saturdays. It's not out of a Sabbath conviction. It's typically out of a Saturday night convenience. Sometimes their church building just needs more space, so they do a Saturday night service and Sundays. Well, the Seventh-day Adventists were having none of that, and they said that was actually a sign of the apostate church early on, that they should have kept it on this Saturday. So it's a core key conviction, Sabbatarianism. They are holding on with both hands that this is a sign of the true church. Now, that's not the only distinctive. That's the distinctive that it's like potato, potato. You know, I, I think it's weird, and I don't know why you'd make such a big deal out of it, but whatever. I don't, it doesn't attack the heart of the gospel. Maybe there's some works righteousness squeezing in there, but, you know, teach his own. Here's another view that's a little uh, different. Another core teaching that distinguishes them from most Christian groups is they believe in what's called soul sleep. Any of y'all ever heard of soul sleep? Soul sleep is the view that when you die, your soul, well, it goes to sleep. It just rests unconsciously. That when you die and you are buried in the grave, your soul, though your body is surely decaying, your soul is just inert, unconscious, and awaiting. They root this in different analogies the Bible uses to describe death like sleep, and the Bible does use that language from time to time, but they overextend the analogy and conclude that when you die, you just are there. Now, some of you are thinking, is there anything wrong with that? I don't know what, I don't know what happens. Is that what happens? Well, the reason why Orthodox Christians have historically rejected this view is because the Scripture is more clear that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That when you die, you are immediately in the presence of your Maker. That is a core Christian teaching that we believe the soul does not sleep. That when you die, your soul is instantly ushered into the presence of your maker. You go to a place we loosely call heaven. Theologians have a precise name. They call it the intermediate state. We call it the intermediate state for this reason. The Bible teaches that once Jesus comes again and defeats Satan, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, the eternal state, heaven eternal. But there is a place called heaven or the intermediate state where you will be in the presence of the Lord until that day comes. Theologians use that language. We also hold this conviction not only because of those words, 
But do you remember, for example, Jesus' story about uh, Lazarus and Abraham and that great gulf chasm that separated the two of them? And that uh, man desperately wanted to get some relief because he was in the fires of hell. And he reached over to Abraham and Abraham said, I can't. I can't. There's a gulf between us. I can't come over. Well, that illustrates for us that you are not annihilated, meaning if you're dead, if you die outside of Christ, you just disappear. That denies that view. And it denies the view that if you're in Christ, when you die, you just fall asleep because he was well awake. The point is. One core teaching of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is that when you die, you're just going to sleep and kind of be inert until you come again. That is largely regarded as unorthodox. I wouldn't call it heretical in the sense that it's like denying the heart of the gospel, far from it, but we would call it an errant teaching. Now, there's another distinctive. This is the core one. This is the weird one. This is the one you've probably never heard of, but Seventh-day Adventists would say it is the core distinguishing doctrine of Seventh-day Adventism. They call this their greatest contribution to Christianity. And that is what they call the sanctuary doctrine. It's this view that I've already alluded to, that they believe that really what has happened is Jesus, when he died on the cross, he atoned for your sins Kind of. He died. He made a sacrifice on the altar. But it wasn't until 1844 that he finished the job. That from Calvary to 1844, he was like the priest in the holy place. He was making the sacrifices, interceding for you with the prayers. That's what the incense typified. He was offering forgiveness of sins. But it wasn't until 1844 that he finally stepped into the Holy of Holies where he did one better. Previously, he had just given you forgiveness of sins. But in their view, sins that were forgiven can be unforgiven. They were teaching that, yeah, you could be forgiven, but then if you screw up, you could lose it, which is why that's their explanation for people that seem like they're Christians and are not Christians and seem like they're Christians and they're not Christians. That's because they got forgiven, then they weren't, then they are, then they weren't, which is why they kept doing the sacrifices over and over again. It wasn't until the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and made that final sacrifice on the Day of Atonement that would cleanse the whole temple. It was only then that Jesus would not merely forgive your sins, but they make this weird distinction. They would say, in 1844, he began to blot out your sins, which is their weird distinction that they say is permanent forgiveness. Now, the Bible doesn't make that distinction. I don't make that distinction, but they do. And they believe that beginning in 1844, Jesus started to do this true, deep, lasting forgiveness, this blotting out of sins. Now, in fairness, I told you I want to be charitable. I do not want to just be chucking rocks because I recognize I'm preaching to the choir. I've got a sympathetic audience. In fairness, a lot of Seventh-day Adventists would say probably, preacher, you're, you're not being fair here. They would probably argue something to this effect. We don't teach that Jesus kind of atoned at Calvary and then finished the job in 1844. 
We believe Jesus was the full final sacrifice at Calvary, but that he began to apply it in a different way in 1844. So they're not going to say he did 50% of the job and then finished the job later. They're going to say he did 100% of the job. He was the final sacrifice once for all. It was made then, but it was applied anew differently. So now the big question we got to ask ourselves is, what has been happening in their mind since 1844? If he entered the Holy of Holies, so to speak, in 1844, and he's been doing a job until finally, whenever he's done, Jesus is going to come back, what is that job? This is another key core teaching of Seventh-day Adventists. That is what they call investigative judgment. They believe that since 1844, Jesus has been in heaven doing an investigative judgment on you and me and all who know him. Where do they get this? Well, they go to your Bible. Like they go to all, where they get all of their views. And they go read in Revelation 20, a passage you know. You remember that end of Revelation 20 where it describes there's coming a day where we will stand before the judge and there will be books opened and we will be judged by all we've done in the books and then in the book of life? Is your name there? They believe that since 1844, Jesus has been opening the books, so to speak, and he's been going name by name for all the people throughout history figuring out what they've done, who they are, if they deserve to go to heaven or not. It's been like one giant courtroom scene. This has been law and order meets your favorite courtroom drama since 1844. And Jesus is the great attorney. He is the defense attorney sitting there saying, you need to remember this, that, and the other, defending us before the judge. And the reason he hasn't come back is because he hasn't finished the job yet that he has been doing an investigative judgment in heaven since 1844. Now, admittedly, some people have been getting a little, uh, a little anxious. They're going, all right, you know, my patience is wearing thin. How long is this going to take? Go get him some paralegals to get the job done. What is happening here? There's, there's this angst, and there has, there has been some leaving the faith over, how long are we going to let this go on before we realize we might have been wrong on this? since lots of people have been wrong about a lot of their theories here. That's the tension that you'll see to degrees within Seventh-day Adventism. But in general, their official doctrine is that since that day, Jesus has been in heaven investigatively judging us until he finishes the job. And when he finishes the job, what is he going to do next? He's going to do what the high priest did. But when the high priest left the Holy of Holies, what was his next move? He would go and place his hand upon the scapegoat. And they believe that Jesus' next move upon finishing the investigative judgment in the Holy of Holies, which I don't know where they get, why they connect the stuff in Revelation 20 with what happens in the Holy of Holies. That confuses me as like it might you, but they do. Then he's going to go and lay his hand upon Satan, so to speak, which we see in Revelation 20 uh, where Satan is cast into the uh, lake of fire. And they believe Satan will finally be cast out and then he will return and reign as king of kings and as lord of lords. That is, generally speaking, their doctrinal position. The two core odd beliefs 
that I would say are weighty, significant, and ought to give us pause are their view of the sanctuary doctrine and of investigative judgment. Worshiping on Saturday, I'm not for it. It's weird, but, you know, there are some weird people out there that have weird views. The soul sleep, I disagree with it, but I don't think having that view puts you outside the bounds of Christianity. You start looking at this 1844 business, and you start thinking, okay, what is this? This is a weird view. They'll still say you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but then they deny that by saying that Jesus is right now deciding whether or not you get to go to heaven based off what you've done. That he's judging your works such that if you have enough in the balance, you'll get into glory. Well, that denies justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So that gives me great pause. The fact that they enthrone somebody like Ellen G. White as a unique prophetess of God, that one who was inspired by God, who did not give us additional books to the Bible. They would say, so Ellen White wrote some 60 books, some 10,000 pages. They don't think any one of those pages belongs in the Bible. They wouldn't say that's the missing 67th plus book. So glad to hear that. But nevertheless, they elevate it to such a degree that you're now dealing with a group that's got an unusual, uh, I would say, heretical view of a particular individual as a prophet and a group that is right on the edge, if not right over the edge, of denying the heart of the gospel with justification by faith alone because of what they believe is happening right now in investigative judgment and a group that has problematically imposed some weird date that was not revealed in the Bible as a significant day in the history of redemption, it leads you all to say, okay, I don't know what, this is not, definitely not Orthodox Christianity. I think we're all agreed on that. Where does it fall? Is it a sect or is it a cult? Now, I'm just going to say, this is somewhat in the eye of the beholder. It doesn't really matter kind of technically where you categorize it because they're just arbitrary words. I'm just going to conclude with the same way I've concluded on all of our other studies. You're going to notice, have you all noticed that my answer to the fourth question, what are the differences, how do you know it's a cult, they've all been the same? It's because they're all the same. All of these groups, in my judgment, this one less than some of the others, but all of these groups, in my judgment, end up denying who God is, what God has said, deny who we are, and deny uh, what we need. In this case, I would argue that Seventh-day Adventism gets really, really close to denying who God is. They don't deny the official doctrine of the triune Godhead, but they deny who Jesus is in terms of his work. They are adding to his work something that the Bible doesn't reveal. Now, charitably, they are trying to interpret a prophecy. But I think probably that if you just stop there and say, all right, well, potato, potato, I think that's probably a little too charitable. I would say the, the prophetic interpretation here is not only wacky, it's, it's, it's dangerous because it has put an unusual import on a date that the Bible gives no warrant for, and it has caused a ton of believers to begin to view a whole system of redemptive history that is foreign to the Bible. I, I think this group gets right on the edge of denying 
who God is as revealed in the Bible. I think it denies in a very real sense what God has said by putting words in the mouth of Ellen White saying that she is a prophetess of God. Again, they won't put it on par with the scripture, but they will put sufficient weight on her that I would say that is a highly, highly, highly dangerous place to be when you start elevating. By the way, as an aside, if any Christian pastor ever tells you he's a prophet, and by the word prophet he means he is one who has fresh revelation from God, mark him, run. This is wrong. You need to beware of a man who will stand up and say, I have fresh revelation from you. You guys want to know something? If I come to you on a Sunday morning and say I have fresh revelation from God, I didn't sleep well last night, and I'm not thinking straight. You should never listen to anything I or Clint says if we don't have the Bible in our hand and say, here's what this book means, because who cares what I think? Who cares what he thinks? We're not your priests. We are not going to have any better spot in heaven. In fact, we'll probably have a worse spot in heaven because we were privileged to be pastors on earth. We are you, just you. We're no different. We're just called to be under shepherds. It's our vocation, but you don't need me as a priest because you already have a great high priest in Jesus. So beware of somebody who positions themselves as a prophet. We don't need a prophet anymore because we already got our full prophecy in the person and work of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us in the former days God spoke to us in the prophets, but in the final day he has spoken to us by his son, the full final revelation of God. The canon is closed. I'm not waiting for anything else. So I would say Seventh-day Adventism, it gets real close. In my judgment, it gets there. It's denying not only who God is, but but what he has said. In a very real sense, though minorly, I'll grant, it to a degree denies who we are by denying a core teaching about what happens to us when we die. Again, I don't I think this is something that you can, it's not you're not outside the bounds of Christianity if you disagree on this point, but I think it is biblically unwarranted to make the argument that soul sleep is what occurs upon death. But then most importantly, and this would be my final reason why I'm okay putting Seventh-day Adventism in a series of lessons called Cults and Sects, and that is because I do think it denies, in a very real sense, what we need. Because what we need, full stop, without qualification, without stammer or stutter, what we need, as you well know, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and it alone that there will come a day where you and I will stand shoulder to shoulder with Billy Graham and the biggest scallywag you've ever met. And on that day, Billy Graham's plea, my plea, and that guy's plea will be one and the same. We will all stand there with empty hands, with nothing to commend ourselves to the Lord. Our only hope will be that we have an advocate, our great high priest Jesus, who will stand between us and the Father and say, righteous, blameless, because of what he did for us. He will in that day, as I've said so many times before, make a stand, as Jude says, blameless in the presence of God with great joy, which is great hope that my final judgment before the Lord, I will not have to stand there with knocking knees wondering, did I do enough? Did I? Did I? How is he going to measure all this out? Am I going to finally weigh out in the plus at the end of time? The truth is I wouldn't. I promise you I would lose that battle Praise be to God, that's not going to be the metric. My only hope will be Jesus Christ. Official doctrine of Seventh-day Adventism is going to say his investigative judgment is determining whether or not you get into glory. Now, before I conclude our study tonight, 
I do want to say one final qualification. Not all Seventh-day Adventists are cut from the same cloth. They are, by and large, there's a lot of Orthodox Christianity you'll see within it. There are some that may not even be wholly aware of half the stuff I said tonight. That's not uncommon. There's Christians that aren't wholly aware of core doctrines that I wish you all knew. You know, that's just true. I didn't know a lot of stuff for years and years and years. So I would not, I, I, I don't categorize in my, in my mind a Mormon and a Seventh-day Adventist at, in the exact same category. I do categorize both as deviant from the gospel, but I view one as further in the sense that I mean, you guys remember the story of Mormonism, right? Whew, it's way out there. Seventh-day Adventism is way closer with this one, well, this twin view of the sanctuary doctrine and investigative judgment, which is why I have concluded that they, have, they are outside the bounds of the Orthodox Christian understanding of the gospel because, in truth, their official core doctrine ends up denying who God ultimately is, what God has ultimately said, who we ultimately are, and what we ultimately need. Now, next week, when you all come back, I promised you something that I'm not going to deliver on, and I never do this. In fact, I had one brother come up telling me he's excited, and I wanted to hang my head low. I told you all that I was going to teach on Scientology, but two reasons why I've decided not to. One was, it's so wacky. It's every... Every cult I've taught on is very Christian-y. Have you noticed that it's like, it's, it starts with Christianity, then it veers off. Scientology doesn't even start there. It's like in left field. It's sci-fi, really. So for me to do it justice would take multiple weeks, and you guys are going to be so lost because I'm so lost trying to wrap my mind around it. By the way, I spent half of this week studying Scientology. I wrote a whole lesson on it, and then I realized this is not going to make any sense to any of y'all. So I scrapped it and decided to do Seventh-day Adventism. And the other reason is John Steg Merton, the worship pastor at Maine campus, he's got to teach the Scientology lesson for me because I'll be out of town when I teach this whole series at Maine. And he basically came groveling on his hands and knees. Please get rid of Scientology. So I decided to be nice to him. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm going to do next week, I think this will be interesting for you guys, is we've just been discussing the cults. But you come back next Wednesday, and this will be my final uh, uh, Wednesday with you. Clint will be here after uh, the following week. And I'm going to do a lesson doing an overview of the occult, which I think will be quite interesting. If you can recall, we differentiated between the two. Cults are Christian-y. Occult is like the demonic weird stuff. So next week, we'll do a high-level overview of those major occults so that we'll have at least a well-rounded view of the total subject matter. Sound good? Let us pray. We'll call it a night, and I'll see you next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I praise you for Jesus, whose sacrifice for, it was once for all, who is presently our great high priest interceding for us, and who will come again. That is our great hope, our plea, and so we cry in one accord, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Until that day comes, Lord, I pray we would be found faithful to witness. I pray we would be found faithful to tell others who have been deceived. I pray, Lord, that you would find that you would use us, I should say, to find those we know in Seventh-day Adventism, Christian science, Mormonism, and Jehovah's Witnesses, Lord, that you use us to find these folks and to show them the light of the gospel and the glory of God in the face 
and person and work of Jesus Christ. And so use us, we pray, in spite of us, for the sake of your name. Amen. Good night, everybody. See you next week.